Wonderful songs this morning, all pointing us to the big problem, right? Our sin and God's provision for our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. Great to point our attention in that direction this morning. If you have your Bible with you, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. We're going to be kind of jumping around those two chapters to follow the storyline. And also, you could put your finger in Psalm 52 as well, because we're going to end up there today too. So last week, if you were here with us at Riverview in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, we saw David and Jonathan part ways after it had been pretty decisively concluded that Saul was after David to kill him. And we found out that David's immediate destiny was that he was going to live as an outlaw, an exile on the run. And for the rest of this whole book, actually, David will live as that exiled outlaw on the run. In fact, the rest of this book covers about a 10-year period of time in David's life being on the run from Saul. Imagine that, 10 years of being on the run. 10 years of sleeping with one eye open, of always looking over your shoulder. 10 years of not knowing who you could trust, of not knowing where your next meal was going to come from, or where you'd be sleeping that night. 10 years of that. It's probably safe to say that most of us, not all of us, just most, have probably never been through an ordeal that lasted 10 years. A couple of weeks ago, I was just feeling off, just wasn't feeling very good. And it lasted for a couple of weeks of just some headaches and just an off feeling. You probably know what that's like. But pretty much every day for about two weeks, I just wasn't feeling well. And boy, was I sick of those two weeks. (laughs) Two weeks of just not feeling good was plenty for me. Imagine 10 years. And I was so glad when those two weeks were over. And here David is staring down the barrel of 10 years of living as an exile, of living life on the run, as an outlaw, an enemy of the most powerful man in the country. And if you've ever wondered if God uses difficult times like that in the lives of his people to grow them personally and spiritually, and that he uses those times to draw people to himself, you should put those doubts from your mind because consider this, your Bible is made up, of course, of individual books. And right in the middle of your Bible is the longest book of the Bible, the book of Psalms. Uh, And those are Hebrew poems that were written to express praise and pain and thanksgiving. And consider this, scholars believe that as many as 22 of those Psalms were written during this 10-year period of David's life. 22 psalms that David wrote during the darkest years of his life as he's living in the wilderness on the run from Saul, not knowing who he can trust. 22 psalms that he wrote. And just imagine how many people throughout the centuries have drawn upon those psalms written at such a low point in David's life and they've drawn upon them for strength and encouragement. I'm sure that you have. So does God use difficult times to grow us? And can he use those difficult times to encourage others? Absolutely. And we have hard proof of it in the life of David just through these psalms. Did you know that even Jesus drew strength from one of these psalms that David wrote while he was in exile? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Did you know that Jesus was quoting David from one of the psalms that he wrote while he was in exile for these 10 years? 
And we're going to see exactly how this plays out in our text today. Again, we're going to jump around a bit in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 because we're going to follow a specific storyline. And the parts that we skip today we'll come back to next week. Now, as we said, David and Jonathan had just parted ways, and that's where we're going to pick it up in 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now stop there. Write a bit. I hope this kind of hits you as a little bit shady. Because David says that he's on a special mission from the king. But of course, that isn't true at all. He's the enemy of the king. So David is telling a lie here in order to get the priest to give him and his men some food. And that's one of the wonderful things about the Bible, about God's heroes, the people that God uses and God calls to himself. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. We get to see these folks, warts and all, their struggles, their temptations, and their failures. And we're seeing one in David right here. So David tells this lie in order to get the priest to give him and his men some food, but that's not technically allowed because the only food the priest has on hand is the bread of the presence, which was bread that was offered to God. And because it's holy bread, it's only supposed to be eaten by the priests, not by common folk. But Ahimelech, this priest, he knows that it's more important to preserve the lives of David and his men than to stand on ceremony. And this is something that even Jesus commends in Mark 2. You can look it up on your own time. That God cares more about the preservation of life than he does standing on ceremony. It's important to preserve life rather than stand on ceremony. So the priest gives David the the bread, albeit under false pretenses, and you'll see how that comes to bear in just a bit. Now look at verse 7. It says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Dog the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now, the author of 1 Samuel kind of sneaks this little observation in there because Dog the Edomite is going to be very important in just a few minutes. Keep that name in your head. Now, verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword on hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Now, 
It seems only natural that David would be the one to have Goliath's sword. After all, he's the one who killed Goliath. But that's not the way other people see this. After all, David is the sworn enemy of the king of Israel. And what has Ahimelech the priest just done? He has given food and weapons to the king's enemies. He has supplied the king's enemies with energy and equipment to be able to fight against the king. Now that's also known as treason. And this is why I think that when Ahimelech first saw David coming, it says in those opening verses that he went out to meet him trembling. Because Ahimelech knows who David is, and he knows who David's enemy is. So to interact with David is no small thing. You're taking your life into your own hands by interacting with David, as a matter of fact. And as you can imagine, Saul hears about this. Now flip over to chapter 22, verse 6. 1 Samuel 22, verse 6. It says, Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who were standing about him, or who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Dog the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now there is our buddy, Dog the Edomite. And in one sentence, he rats out David and Ahimelech. Now Saul was already, con- already convinced that David was a traitor, but Ahimelech was news to him. But Dog the Edomite does more than just rat them out. He piles on. Dog rightly says that Ahimelech gave David food and Goliath's sword, but he also says that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord on David's behalf. But that never happened. That's a detail that Dog seems to add on his own. So now he is a liar as well. Now verse 11 of chapter 22. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, in all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. So Ahimelech comes before the king and he says, I didn't conspire against you, Saul. David is your most faithful citizen. He's your own son-in-law for crying out loud. He's the captain of your garden and he holds a high position in your kingdom. 
Plus, if I did inquire of the Lord on David's behalf, it's something I've done numerous times before, and that I do for anyone. It's my job. I'm the priest. So don't presume I had some motive for helping him to overthrow you. In other words, Ahimelech isn't conspiring with David. He's just doing his job as a priest. Now, unfortunately, that explanation carries absolutely no weight with King Saul. Look at verse 16 of chapter 22. The king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Dog, You turn and strike the priests. And Dog the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Wow. Wow that Saul would presume to execute all the priests for just doing their job. Eighty-five lives gone because of Saul's jealousy and paranoia. But more than that, because after the priests are killed, Dog the Edomite goes to the city of Nob where the priests and their families live, and he kills every man, woman, child, and animal. Think of today as being the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. There was no sanctity of human life in the eyes of Dog or of Saul. And then word of all of this terrible tragedy gets to David, and he is devastated. Verse 20 of chapter 22. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. See, David knows that it was his actions that started this whole terrible ball rolling. Now, he's not responsible for Dog's actions or for Saul's actions, but he certainly played a role in all of this terrible business. After all, it was his lie to Ahimelech that persuaded him to give David the bread and the sword in the first place. Now, how does David feel about all this? Think about it. How would you feel about it if you played this role in Who knows how many hundreds of deaths? Wouldn't you be crushed by guilt? By sorrow? By fear? And also, wouldn't you be overflowing with a desire for vengeance? For retribution for all those priests and men and women and children in the city of Nob who were killed because of the paranoid ravings of a mad king? Wouldn't you just want to make things right? How should David feel about this? What should David learn about himself 
from this experience? What should he learn about God from this experience? Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are numerous psalms written by David during this 10-year period of exile. And one of those psalms contains his reflection on this exact incident, Psalm 52. So turn to Psalm 52 right now, if you would. And when you turn to Psalm 52, take a look at the top of the page, or the top of that psalm. The first thing you'll notice is that it says, To the choir master, a masculine of David, when Dog the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So what has David learned from this experience about himself or about God? The psalm tells us. And the first thing it tells us is that David learns that sin will be dealt with. Look at this wonderful contrast right away in verse 1. David says, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? I'm sure he's talking about Dog. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love endures all the day. Listen to that again. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Now, do you realize what this verse is saying? It's saying that boasting in evil is pointless because the love of God endures. The love of God is the antidote to the evil of the mighty man. Now, what does that mean? That God will just love evil people so much that they have no choice but to succumb to his love because he's just so loving. No. What David is saying is that God's love, the love of God, will not abide evil. It can't. I've said this before, but it's so important that it bears repeating. God is a God of love. But in order for God to be a God of love, he also must hate. God must hate what is evil in order to be a God of love. If God didn't hate evil, then he couldn't be a God of love. Think about it. If everybody, every criminal who ever committed a crime was set free because we love them, that would be a miscarriage of justice, a travesty of justice. In order for God to be a God of love, he must hate what is evil. Or think of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which is today and all this month. I love life. Therefore, I hate abortion. God loves life. Therefore, he hates death. In order for God to be that God of love, he must hate what is evil. Now listen again to verse 1 of Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. God is a God of love and he will not abide evil because he is a God of love. And since God's love endures, so does his justice. God's righteous judgment for sin is coming for you, O mighty man, because he is a God of love. And so one of the things David reflects on in this Psalm 52 is that God is coming to judge sin. Now, there's a problem here because there's sin all over this story from 1 Samuel 21 and 22, and pretty much nobody comes out clean even David. So God is going to deal with Dog's sin. 
God is going to deal with Saul's sin. He's going to deal with David's sin even. Remember, David acknowledged his part in this whole mess. He said that he had occasioned the death of all the people of Abiathar's house. What should God do with that? It's sin. It needs to be dealt with, and God will deal with David's sin, just like he'll deal with Dog's sin and Saul's sin. But he's going to deal with them differently. And this is what the rest of Psalm 52 is about, and what David learns about God and himself, how God is going to deal with sin differently. Now first, Saul talks, or, excuse me, David talks about how God is going to deal with Dog's sin. This is verse 2 of Psalm 52. David says about Dog, Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous, the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Listen, God sees Dog's sin, and he is keeping an account. And one day, Dog's sin will be dealt with. God is coming to tear Dog down forever, to snatch him from his tent, which is another word for his body, and to uproot him from the land of the living. God will deal with Dog's sin by punishing him, 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 him in hell for all eternity. Because that's what sin deserves. That's what God's love demands. Because again, if God didn't punish sin, then he wouldn't be loving. And one of the things that is reiterated in David's mind and his heart in Psalm 52 is that God will punish sin. And for sinners like Dog, that punishment will be harsh and swift and it will last for eternity. But here's the other thing that we learn from this psalm. God doesn't have to deal with sin that way. Look again at verse 7. It says, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Dog did not make God his refuge. His refuge from what? From God's own justice for sin. Here's the reality. We're all in the same boat. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, not even one. All of us have sinned. So we all have to come to grips with the reality that God is coming to deal with my sin. Now, what do I do about that? Is all I have to look forward to the same fate as Dog the Edomite? No, because God has given me the opportunity to make him my refuge. And I need a refuge. What do I need refuge from? I need a refuge from God. Consider that. God is the refuge that I need to keep me safe from God. God's wrath is coming for my sin, but God has given me a refuge in himself to be protected from my sin. And so this is what David learns about himself and about his sin. Look now at verse 8 of Psalm 52. David says about himself, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. 
I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. You see, David and Dog were in the same boat. Both had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and God was coming to settle both of their accounts through his justice. But David made God his refuge. David sought protection from God's wrath through the way that God had prescribed through faith. By believing that God would forgive his sin and make atonement to settle his account, God dealt with David's sin through another means besides eternity in hell. This is why David describes himself as being like a green olive tree in the house of God. Because David is at peace with God. He doesn't need to fear God's wrath for sin because he trusts in God's provision to take care of his sin. Dog the Edomite, on the other hand, chose not to believe that God would forgive his sin and make atonement to settle his account. And instead, he chose to trust in the abundance of his riches for the salvation from God's wrath. But that doesn't work. No amount of riches or anything else can protect you from God's justice. And my friends, this is the exact same situation that you and I find ourselves in as well. Each of us is a David and a Dog. Like them, our sin deserves punishment. And since God is a loving God, he must punish our sin. And he will in one of two ways. Either eternally in hell or by grace through faith in Jesus. Jesus is the other way that God deals with our sin. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth for the express purpose of becoming a sacrifice that would atone for the sins of all who would put their trust in him. So that by believing in him, and by believing that he came and died for your sins, and that he rose from the dead and defeated death for you, you could be like a green olive tree planted in the house of God. Have peace with God for now and all eternity with God in heaven. You don't have to end up like Dog. God has made this provision for you because he loves you. Remember, his love, his steadfast love endures all the day long. He wants to save you. And so he extends this offer to you to come to him and find your salvation. And again, isn't it a wonderful thing that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat all of our Bible heroes, right? We see them warts and all. And someday, if we keep going in the story of David, way off in 2 Samuel, boy, do David's hands get dirty. Boy, do they get sinful. And I don't know what you've done. Probably nothing as awful as what Dog the Edomite did here. 85 priests put to the sword, and then the whole city of Nob destroyed. I don't know what you've done. Maybe it's done something like that. But what I do know is it's nothing that God can't forgive. No matter how far you've gone astray, no matter how much sin you've been diving headfirst into and just swimming all the day long, God can forgive it. 
And he wants you to be like that green olive tree planted in his house at peace with him. That's what God wants. That's how God wants to deal with your sin. There are two ways that God deals with sin. There's one way that he wants to deal with sin, and that is through the means that he has provided through Jesus. And so he calls you, all of you, to put your trust in Jesus and to find this salvation that he offers to you. Now, there's just one final thing I think that David learns from this experience, and it's not mentioned overtly in the psalm, but actually more so back in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And that is that even when sin is forgiven, it still carries consequences. And I think that's something we need to remember too. Sin always has consequences. Listen, even sin that has been forgiven, we still feel it. We still suffer from it, right? Even if we we do something, I don't know, horrible or fill in the blank, whatever it might be, there's a consequence for our actions. There's a consequence for our sin. And God does indeed forgive our sin, but sometimes we still feel the effects while we're in this body, in this life, on this earth. We still feel the consequences of sin. And this, I think, is something that was really fresh in David's mind. Because what did he say when Abiathar came? He said, Everyone in my dad's house is dead. And David says, I have occasioned the death of everyone in your house. 85 people. And then also the city of Nob. The men, women, and children, and every animal that was there. Now, was that sin on David's part forgiven? I believe it was. 100%. But David had to live with that knowledge of the role that he played in that whole mess. Now, again, I'm not, David doesn't bear the responsibility of uh, Dog or Saul for putting those people to death, but he played a part, right? He played a part. And one of the consequences of that sin is he's got to live with it. Now, he's not going to be crushed by the guilt of it. He's not going to be condemned by it because, again, it is forgiven sin. We should never feel crushed or condemned by forgiven sin because God says that he throws it away. As far as the east is from the west, he throws it into the deepest ocean, never to be seen again. That's what your forgiven sin is. It's out of God's mind. But we still deal with it. We still deal with the consequences. So even though when we sin, it can and will be forgiven by God if we repent and turn to him in faith, we're still going to feel it. And can I just encourage you that's another reason just to run away from sin altogether? Just avoid it. And if it's in your life, kill it. Put it to death. Because there is no sin that you can commit that does not have consequences. That you will not feel in some way, shape, or form. Even those things you might do by yourself that nobody else sees, they have consequences. If nothing else, it's going to harden your heart for the next time that you're tempted. And it's going to be that much easier to give in because nobody sees don't do it. Run away from it. Avoid sin. And if it's in your life, kill it. Get rid of it because there is no sin that you can commit that does not affect you in some way or bring to bear some kind of consequence in your life, even forgiven sin. And so as we think about this passage from 1 Samuel 21 and 22 and then from Psalm 52, boy, we see just a lot of evil and wickedness. We see a lot of sin but we also see David's confidence that that sin will be forgiven. And the call for you this morning is to follow David's example. The call for you is to be that green olive tree planted in the house of God, to live at peace with God, and to run the heck away from sin. 
Get rid of it because it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you or it's going to hurt the people around you. Leave it. Run away. Flee. Get as far away from it as you can. And if you've never trusted in God for his salvation through Jesus Christ, the call from this passage for you is to do that. Because you are Dog. You are David. And God is coming to deal with sin because his steadfast love abides all the day. He's coming. And he wants to deal with your sin through his son. So come to him in faith. Put your trust in him. And Jesus will have paid your penalty for your sin on the cross. And you will be at peace with God. And you will live for all eternity with him in heaven. Make that your hope. Come to peace with God. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you and we give you glory for your provision through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, each one of us, if we were honest and if we searched our hearts, would find the depths of sin. Lord, and I hope and I pray and I ask that you would impress that sin upon our hearts. Help us to know the depth of our sin, the depth of our neediness. And Lord, let us not stay there long, for you have provided the means for our redemption, the means of our rescue and our salvation. You have made peace between God and man. Lord, help us to know that peace, to trust in that peace, and to live in that peace. And Lord, help us to see the cost of sin, that we would not dangle our toes in a pool of sin, even just a little bit, but we would run away from it. We would put it to death in our lives where it exists so that we might not feel its effects, but more so, Lord, that we might live lives that are pleasing to you, that we might pursue righteousness and holiness and service to you in our lives rather than play with sin. Lord, help us to put it to death. And God, I ask specifically for anybody in this room who has never come to trust in you, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. Holy Spirit, that again, you would make real to them the sin in their lives and make known to them the provision that you have made. Holy Spirit, that you would draw them to yourself and show them Jesus Christ and the glory of his gospel so they might trust and believe. We ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. His mercy is more.